Well, it has been a hard week, um, a draining, taxing, long week with, dis- with uh, you know, discouragement and grief and the need in my own heart um, to acknowledge, Lord, I am, I am struggling. Um, I feel weak and empty. And, uh, and there's just, you know, there's the continuing sort of weariness of COVID-19 expanding in our community, the, the mask mandates, um, the, uh, the semester end activities with student ministry that was led to many things canceled, um, other ministries that have been paused or canceled, new positive tests in our, in our congregation, including our pastor. And then as I've prayed for, most heavy of all, the loss of Maria, our dear sister in Christ, who we prayed for many times in our gatherings, um, part of this church and our lives for many, many years. And in the spirit of Romans 15, 15, that says, weep with those who weep. Many have been grieving along with the family, even while we rejoice passing uh, at her passing into the presence of the Lord Jesus. There's that grief of loss, isn't there? And, uh, and then there's all the normal, just continuing realities, week by week in a fallen world. The news still reports a divided nation. Cars still break down. That doesn't stop, does it? There's still expenses. Conflicts still need to be resolved. Fill in the blank. Think about your, uh, the, whatever you may be facing this last week. And beloved, this is our fallen world. This is the groaning of creation, Romans uh, 8.22 says. And, and the question comes, what do we do with the pain and the weariness of life? Uh, Of what must we be reminded? How do we respond to the heaviness and the discouragement and the weightiness of life? Well, our text this morning is not the one that you have in your outline or bulletin as Pastor Dan uh, tested positive late in the week. Uh, But I've been studying in Hebrews. And so turn in your Bible to Hebrews, if uh, if you will. And our text this morning speaks to this very issue of how we respond, of what we must be reminded, giving us three ballasts for the soul. Turn to chapter 1, we'll be in chapter 4, but we see this morning three anchors, three basic but simple transcendent reminders about the Lord Jesus. And uh, Hebrews chapter 4 will be our text of study, but in chapter 1... Uh, we find the opening to this letter. Hebrews was written to early Jewish Christians who were tempted really to slide back under the cultural protection and familiarity of Judaism. They were tempted to turn back from Jesus to the Old Covenant. And urging us rather to persevere in faith, Hebrews is like one big long sermon with one main argument, and it is this, Jesus is better Jesus is superior. Thirteen times in this letter that word better is used. Look at verses uh, 1 to 4 of the opening chapter. It says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in His Son whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature. And He upholds all things by the word of His power. When He made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much, there it is, better than angels as He has 
uh, inherited a more excellent name than they. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than the angels, chapter 1 and 2. Better than Moses, chapter 3. Better than Joshua, chapter 4. Better than the Aaronic priesthood. He enacts a superior covenant, offering Himself as a superior sacrifice. Jesus is better. And we see this in wonderful, encouraging words in chapter 4. Our text this morning, words that perhaps are familiar to you, powerful, encouraging words in chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. And so read with, uh, with me our text this morning as we will then unpack uh, a few key thoughts, a few simple thoughts together. Chapter 4 says, Therefore, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things that we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We will circle back to verse 14 by the end, but really starting this morning in verse 15 and working out the logical implications following the argument and the flow, I want to draw our attention to three anchoring reminders. Three reminders of what we possess as we gather as God's people this morning. And they are this, we have a sinless high priest we have a sympathizing high priest, and we have access to our God. We have a sinless high priest, we have a sympathizing high priest, and we have access to our God. First, we have a sinless high priest. Look at what verse 15 says. At, the, at really the second half of verse 15, and really this is the heart of this text, is in the second half of verse 15. We have a sinless high priest, tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Child of God, believers, we have in Jesus Christ a high priest who is tempted but sinless. And this is the engine room. This is the heart of the text. The way this paragraph works is like this. Because Jesus was tempted yet without sin, he can sympathize. And because he sympathizes, we can have confidence, we can have access, we can have boldness and encouragement. And so he was tempted and yet without sin. Those are beautiful words, aren't they? Without sin. Because he's without sin, a truly righteous payment has been made. Because he is without sin, a truly righteous life was lived in our stead. You look around on the TV, you look around in our culture, you look into your own heart, and what do we find? Sin touches everything. Everyone except Jesus. He never displeased the Father. He never broke the Mosaic law. He never for any moment in word, deed, or motivation failed to live for the glory of God alone. John 8, 29 says, I always do what pleases him. This is what the scripture says, a consistent testimony. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, He, the Father, made him who, what? Knew no sin to be sin for us. 2 Peter 2, 22, He committed no sin, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5, There is no sin in him. And Jesus even gave the opportunity for others to charge or convict him of guilt. But what happened? None could. 
He is the lamb without spot or blemish, 1 Peter 1.19. Beloved, do we affirm this? Do we cling to it? Because without a sinless Savior, we have no salvation from sin's curse, from sin's death penalty. Now I want to enter in with you to a theological question that will bridge us into thinking about how verse 15 says that Jesus was tempted. So follow this with me. Uh, the question of sinlessness considers, did Jesus sin? Answer, no. <laughs> but the theological question of impeccability, I-M-P-E-C-C-ability, impeccability, considers the question, could Jesus have sinned? That's what impeccability means. An impeccable you know, piano concert is a performance with no errors, but, but theologically, the impeccability of Jesus affirms not only that Jesus didn't sin, but that he was not able to sin. So, was Jesus able to sin? Answer, no. God cannot lie. He cannot do evil. But do you see, why, do you see the question that this issue raises? If in Jesus' sinlessness he was not able to sin, in what sense, in verse 15, was he truly tempted as we are in all ways? And I want you to listen to the next words carefully. This is not original to me. Christ could not sin because of his divine nature. But the reason that he did not sin was not because of his divine nature. The reason he didn't sin was because of his human obedience. Christ was not able to sin because of his perfect deity. But Christ didn't sin because of his obedient humanity. Let me say it again. He was not able to sin because of his perfect deity, but he did not sin because of his obedient humanity. He didn't play the God card. In 1875, Matthew Webb made the first successful swim across the English Channel. A 21-mile trip, 39 miles of swimming when you count the tidal currents, and the night before his feet, Webb was smeared in porpoise fat for insulation and stepped into a red silk swimsuit. Now, this was 1875. Um, he was spotted by boats that handed him beef tea, coffee, and brandy to keep him warm as he plodded through seaweed beds and stinging jellyfish for 22 hours until he hit shore and made history. Now, the reason that Webb couldn't have drowned was because of the safety boats that spotted his swim. But the reason that he didn't drown is because he kept on swimming. Jesus didn't sin because he kept on obeying. He endured and endured and endured. And in fact, Jesus' endurance made his intention his temptations more real than ours, not less. Because the man who yields to anger or impurity or bitterness, the woman who yields to self-pity or jealousy has not felt the full power of temptation. He or she has given in. Only the one who endures in obedience truly knows the extent of that temptation. So, beloved, never conclude that Jesus is unable to understand the nature of temptation and weakness and weariness that we face in this life. 
Because in Jesus' life, the pressure mounted and built like a dam, uh, filling with water that doesn't break. It continues to build, and he held and held and held. Look in the text. The word tempted has the idea of of testing, more specifically, inducing uh, to sin. And that's exactly what we read in Matthew chapter 4, right? Satanic opposition, where Jesus was attacked. Jesus was opposed by the devil himself. And the point is, is when people, maybe even Christians say, well, because Jesus never experienced failure, Jesus never experienced sin. He doesn't really know what it's like to be tempted. That is like me saying to an Olympic weightlifter, you just, you just don't understand how hard a 400-pound squat is. How can you? You don't fail to put it up like I do. You don't know genuinely how hard it is. Of course he does. Of course he knows how hard that heavy squat is. The fact that we are fraught with failings doesn't mean that Jesus in his strength doesn't understand the pressure. Notice what verse 15 says, that he was tempted in all things. And the point is not that Jesus was tempted to waste time on TV or that Jesus was tempted in road rage, but he was tempted in anger or laziness or any manner of sins, sins of the body, the mind, the heart, sins of omission and commission, defensiveness, uh, communication, motives, Sins related to family, to ministry, to conflict. He felt the pressure of every kind of temptation and withstood the pull. And the point is this, friends. He gets it. He knows. And he sympathizes with the weakness of humanity. That is the second point this morning. We have, we have a, a sinless, a perfect high priest, number one. But we also have, second, a sympathizing high priest. A sympathizing, sympathetic high priest. This is the kind, tender sympathy of Jesus. Look at the first half of verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. That's a double negative. Bad English, but excellent Greek to emphasize the sufficiency and sympathy of Jesus to relate to our troubles. What we feel, Jesus understands. What we struggle with, Jesus has faced as a man and endured. So that every pang that rends the heart, the man of sorrows has a part. This verse identifies Jesus as the great high priest. You see those words, he is our high priest. In Israel's history, the high priest was an office occupied uh, by lineage tracing back to Aaron, the brother of Moses uh, of the Jewish tribe of Levi. And the high priest represented the people to God, leading in Uh, offering sacrifice and uh, prayers of intercession. Perhaps most importantly, the high priest conducted the ceremonial affairs for the annual Day of Atonement, entering into the Holy of Holies and making atonement for Israel's sin. And here we see that Jesus is the great high priest, capital P. Unlike former priests who offered sacrifice over and over, Jesus' sacrifice is once for all. Unlike the former priests who offered the blood of bulls and goats, Jesus' blood and life is truly able to substitute, truly able to cleanse the conscience. Look at this uh, in Hebrews 10. Flip, uh, keep your finger in chapter 4. Chapter 10, verse 10 says, it sort of contrasts the, uh, the sacrifices of the other priests, and it says, 
uh, chapter 10, verse 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every other priest, uh, excuse me, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by the one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. You know the amazing thing, though? This perfect, unique, superior high priest, he exercises that priesthood in sympathetic compassion, drawing near to us. Hebrews 2.18 says, since he was tempted in that which he suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And we see this in our text. Go back to chapter 4. It says that he is... Uh, He's one who sympathizes, and sympathy is a disposition of of help, a capacity for sharing our troubles. It It is pity and sorrow and compassion for another's misfortune. The term in the original is, is a compound word that means to suffer with together. To suffer with together. It pictures a co-sufferer. What we feel Jesus understands. What we struggle with, Jesus has endured. And it's no surprise, really, that if we were to turn to the gospel records and look through uh, the emotional life of Jesus Christ, what is it that he feels most frequently, more than any other emotion? It is compassion. Compassion. Friends, do we believe this truth? The kind tender, sympathizing love of Jesus Christ, not just for other people, but for you. For you. That Jesus stands at the ready, knowing and understanding what it is to be weak and weary and exhausted and sad and tempted. And that the sorrows and concerns and disappointments in your life and mine, they matter to him. He sees when we waver. He cares when we hurt. Whether it's a lingering illness or some discouraging sin or a prayer that you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed and it's it's unanswered. Whether it's a family relationship that feels like it's broken beyond repair. Or simply just the emotional fatigue of life. We, We all feel it. And our Bible says that he ever lives to make intercession for us. Our natural intuition is to think, hey, Jesus is with us. Jesus is present. Jesus is near when life is going well. But Hebrews 4 says the opposite. It says, in our weakness, the tender heart of Jesus sympathizes. That word weakness, it refers to our human frailty. The limitations and temptations of humanity. This word, asthenia, is used for physical sickness or the weakness of the body. Timothy, use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments, asthenia. 1 Timothy 5.23. John 5.5, there was a man who was ill for 38 years, asthenia. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15.33, he contrasts our future resurrection body, which is raised in power with our present physical bodies that are sown in weakness. We get sick, sore, 
worn out, and it's only a matter of time before physical limitations confront us with what it means and what it feels like to be weak. Even the strongest of men feel the waning of strength. And so to Jesus, he felt the intense pangs of hunger after 40 days. He felt the exhaustion and fatigue working and ministering so hard that he was fast asleep during a dangerous storm on a boat. So great was the weariness and weakness and pain of his body that he could not carry his own cross to Golgotha. But beyond the body and human weakness, uh, excuse me, beyond the body, our human weakness encompasses our experience of heartache. He knows. Abandonment. Being emotionally drained. Jesus understands the limitations and temptations of humanity as one who never sinned. He knows what it is to be weak, and he moves towards us in our weakness. That's true this week. Dane Ortland, in his excellent book, and I commend it to you, Gentle and Lowly, uh, just precious meditations on the kindness of Christ. Dane Ortland writes that as one without sin, Jesus alone can pull us out of the hole of sin. But not only that, Jesus alone desires to climb into the hole and bear our burdens with us as one who cares. A co-sufferer. You see, beloved, it's not the self-sufficiency, the ever-present, I'm fine, with a fake smile, the ever-stubborn, I'll do it myself. It's not that which particularly draws the kindness and the sympathy of Jesus. No, he draws near to the family grieving loss. He draws near to the person so discouraged by sin that they want to give up. To the exhausted, to the exasperated, to the hurting, he sympathizes. And if I can do nothing helpful this morning but remind you of your weakness and Jesus' shocking kindness to us in that, then that's enough. Maybe you lose hours at work. Or you have to cancel family plans over the holidays because of COVID. Or you just feel sad and weary. And maybe the joy of the Lord and the joy of ministry even hasn't left you. But you're heavy hearted. And I want you to know Jesus sees. Jesus cares. And I'm so grateful for that just in my own life. I, I haven't lost anyone. I haven't lost a family member this week. Um, I haven't been sick. Uh, but I have been weary for a while. Um, and I'm so grateful that Jesus knows and he sees. Well, we've looked at verse 15, which is the heart and soul of this text. We have a sinless high priest. We have a sympathetic high priest. But third, we have access to God through Jesus. We have access to God. Verse 16 says, Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have access, thirdly, to our God. It's access that's through Jesus. But these Christians who received this letter needed mercy and grace in the face of persecution. They were weary. They were worn out. They were considering in the face of persecution turning back from Jesus. And this text says, don't go back. Come to the throne of grace. 
The right way to handle difficulty, whether persecution or pain or disappointment, is to turn to our great high priest who understands and to come to the throne of grace. That's really the first thing we see in verse 16 here, that we have access first to the throne of grace. Access to the throne of grace. Friends, this is how God desires us to handle our pain in every generation. Go to the Lord. That's so simple. But it's so important because it's easy to distract ourselves. To avoid the pain in our lives. I've struggled with that. Uh, to, To put it away. To avoid it. Or maybe when it comes to sin, it's easy to minimize or rationalize or blame shift. And I'm telling you, whether it's sin or weakness or pain or perhaps a combination, go to the Lord. If we're heavy laden, what does Jesus say in Matthew 11? Come, come to me, all who are heavy laden. Beloved, go to the Lord in your pain and difficulty. Go to the Lord in prayer. Go to the throne of grace. We sing, Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful? Who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. It's a beautiful picture. Verse 16 says it's the throne of grace. Throne envisions his sovereignty. Grace, his benevolence. Not a throne of judgment, Not a throne of harsh rule, but a throne of grace. (laughs) This is not a promise to pass up. The high priests of Judaism, they could only approach God at his earthly throne in the temple once a year. But every believer can approach the heavenly throne at any time in prayer. When an Israelite was tempted, he couldn't run to the high priest, really, for help. He definitely couldn't enter the Holy of Holies with God, uh, of God to help. We can. We can. Because of the justifying righteousness of Christ imputed to us, counting perfection to our stead because of our adoption into the very family of God, because of our union to Jesus by virtue of His Spirit, As one who abides in us, we can enter the very presence of heaven's throne room. And notice the manner of this entrance. What does it say? With confidence, with boldness, we can draw near. Boldness, the King James says. This word confidence is so rich, friends. It's an attitude of of openness stemming from freedom or lack of fear. That's what this word means, confidence. An attitude of openness stemming from freedom or lack of fear. It's the raw, open, wrestling and trusting that we see in the Psalms of Lament. And this term is translated, it's actually quite common, it's translated many ways. It's translated as speaking plainly, telling openly, boldness, confidence. And rather than personal sort of swagger, it means to speak to God with frank unashamed openness and honesty. Reverent, yes. 
but open and honest. I can tell you from my own experience that a man can be polished in his theology of sanctification. He can know that God works all things together for good. He can know, James 1, that the trials produce maturity. And yet that man can not be honest with God about pain and discouragement and disappointment in his life. And yet to neglect the resources, the comfort in prayer is to cut ourselves off from a precious gift, isn't it? The problem with these early Christians is they were tempted, instead of drawing near, to draw back. And every time that we face adversity, whether it's just the slow drip of first world problems, or it's unfulfilled expectations or loss, that danger is there to draw back instead of to come forward. But look at verse 16 goes on. Not only do we have access to the throne of grace, we have access, secondly, to divine resources of mercy, grace, and help. It says uh, that we come confidently to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy to find grace to help in time of need. Don't miss this, friends. God is eager and willing to supply mercy and grace and help. Mercy covers our failings and grace empowers us for the course forward. And these are needs how often? Every day. Every day. New every morning. It was fascinating in study to discover that that phrase, in time of need, you see that in your Bible? In time of need. Uh, it, it, we might render it in the nick of time. <laughs> Let's say you're assaulted by some temptation. At the very moment of combat, looking to the throne of grace, praying for strength, appropriating biblical promises, rehearsing the truth, requesting power from Jesus, at that moment, the grace is there to help. It's not, please wait three business days. He'll provide an escape in the moment of temptation, just like 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says. We have a way of escape, right? So we have access to grace, mercy, and help. An old book called Pilgrim's Progress brings this truth to life where the main character, Christian, is learning spiritual truth by an object lesson from a man called Interpreter. And the text of Pilgrim's Progress says this. Then I saw in my dream that the interpreter took Christian by the hand and he led him to a place where a fire was burning against the wall and one standing by it, always casting much water upon it to quench it. And yet the fire burned higher and hotter. And Christian said, what means this? The interpreter answered, the fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart. He that casts water upon it to extinguish it and put it out is the devil. But nevertheless, you see that the fire burns hotter and hotter. You will see also the reason of that. So he had him come about the back side of the wall where he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand of which he did also continually and secretly cast it into the fire. And Christian said, what means this? The interpreter answered, this is Christ, who continually, with the oil of his grace, maintains the work already begun in the heart, 
And by these, the souls of his people prove gracious, regardless of what the devil can do. The man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire. And this is to teach you that it is often hard for the tempted to see how the work of grace is maintained in the soul. As we close, go to verse 14. We, we went past it. But flowing out of all that we've seen, let me read it to you and encourage us likewise to endure. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. He ministers in heaven, not, in the, not behind the veil of the temple. And I just would say to you this morning, brothers, sisters, hang tough. Keep trusting in season and out of season. Keep praying. Keep enduring. Keep going to the great high priests. Keep entering the throne room. My hope is this morning our hearts have been encouraged to love and trust our God, our Lord and Savior, our great high priest, that our confession of Jesus would indeed be renewed and that we would resolve to hold fast to him. Let me speak to anyone who has not surrendered your life to God. In closing, who has not personally submitted to Jesus Christ, I urge you this morning, turn from your sin. Any man, woman, young person, turn from your sin. Trust in Jesus. None of these sweet promises are yours to claim if Jesus is not interceding for you. So come. Acknowledge your sin. Turn from self-righteousness, from your pride, from your wickedness. Trust in Jesus, his provision of grace. His life lived in our stead. His death died on the cross. Trust in Jesus because no sympathizing kindness comes from him. The high priest does not represent us if we refuse his love. We will face divine scrutiny in the guilt of our sins. So come. Any believing, broken, repentant person, no matter how undeserving, can approach the throne of grace to find forgiveness, to find salvation from sin, and to find a new life where even amidst pain and weakness, Jesus reigns supreme. Let's pray.